I'm sure Dan needs no introduction, but I'll, I'll and give him one anyway. Um, we're all very familiar with his work. Um, Dan Zahavi is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Copenhagen, where he is also the Director of the Centre for Subjectivity Research. Um, he's also a Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oxford. Dan is the author and editor of uh, more than 25 books, um, including Self-Awareness and Alterity and Husserl's Phenomenology. Uh, today, he is going to give a talk entitled Pure and Applied Phenomenology. So I'll hand it over to Dan and I'll join again at the end um, to ask questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much, uh, Luna. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, I think it's fair to say that phenomenology has been a source of inspiration for empirical science uh, from the very start, and this might even have been one of the enduring attractions of, uh, of phenomenology. And if we go back even prior to uh, World War One, we might see or we can see disciplines such as psychiatry and experimental psychology uh, take inspiration from some of Husserl's ideas. And of course, later on, a lot of other disciplines join, including, for instance, sociology and, and anthropology. The big question, though, is that even, even though uh, phenomenology has found application uh, outside of philosophy, there's no obvious consensus about what exactly is the best way uh, to apply phenomenology. And what I want to do in my talk today is to consider some, some current widespread proposals uh, and, and kind of examine and assess to what extent uh, they are uh, the best ways of actually going about uh, applying phenomenology. I will be in particular be looking at uh, qualitative research uh, and I want to uh, present to you uh, the diverse perspectives of three different uh, kind of leading figures in this field. Uh, Johnson Smith, uh, who is known for his interpretive from logical analysis, uh, Max van Manen, who is an advocate of what he calls hermeneutic phenomenology. And uh, Amadeo Giorgi, who is known for, for many years to have uh, advocated what he called the descriptive phenomenological method. And I mean, these uh, approaches are extremely widely used, uh, widely used in, in applied psychology, educational research, nursing studies, many, many different fields. And they are all extremely uh, well-cited. But let's take a, a closer look at what they actually have to offer. And let's start with Johnson Smith. So in one of his early texts, uh, Smith argues that his approach uh, merits the name from logical because it aims to, as he says, explore the participants' view of the world and to adopt as far as is possible an insider's perspective of the phenomenon under study. Now, what is uh, distinct about uh, Smith's IPA is that it has an ideographic focus. So it's not really interested in eidetic structures and essential structures, but rather in kind of careful microanalysis of, of concrete cases. And so rather than asking, you know, what does it feel to, to be homeless in general? I mean, the, the target uh, explanandum is, you know, how does George experience being homeless? Or how does Anna <coughs> experience being a mother? Now this focus on the, on the, uh, this ideographic focus obviously entails a, a certain departure from classical uh, Husserlian phenomenology. 
Uh, and it's also uh, noticeable that uh, Smith in his presentation of IPA doesn't really reference uh, Husserl's notion of uh, from logical uh, reduction. And he also doesn't think that it's uh, pertinent for a phenomenological approach to remain purely uh, descriptive. Rather, as Smith puts it, human beings are always engaged in interpretive meaning-making activities. And so for that reason, uh, uh, interpretation is not just uh, unavoidable, but perfectly uh, permissible. Now, at one point, uh, uh, Smith has argued that uh, IPA for, for IPA, the primary role of the researcher uh, is to invite the participant to share an episode of sense-making, to act as a witness to its articulation, and then in turn, to make sense of it. And after having uh, presented this kind of overview of the fundamental structure, uh, he has argued that this proves or demonstrates IPA's close affinity uh, with Heidegger's hermeneutic phenomenology. Now, without kind of going into the details, it's not perfectly uh, transparent for me why, why this claim is, is, is warranted, why making these three steps should really make IPA very close to Heideggerian phenomenology. But a more general question, I think, to ask is whether uh, it is sufficient to consider the perspective of the agent or the patient or client in order to make the approach from a logic. Because this was kind of the starting point of Smith's uh, presentation of IPA. I mean, if one does that, if one is interested in the perspective of the client or patient, uh, is this then sufficient to make the approach from logical in, in in a way that kind of makes it different from other approaches in qualitative research. And again, in order to kind of defend its choice of terms, IPA have argued that to be phenomenological uh, really means that it seeks to examine the experience according to its own terms rather than according to predefined uh, category uh, systems, systems. But of course, one could still wonder, is there not more to phenomenology than, uh, than this? And in reply to this kind of criticism, uh, Smith somewhat perhaps impatiently have argued that philosophy does not own phenomenology. I mean, presumably this kind of criticism is primarily coming from, uh, from philosophers. And that uh, in the end, uh, what philosophers have really uh, simply been doing is to formalize something all of us were already doing uh, uh, prior to that. Now, this might not be the most convincing uh, defense. And, and interestingly, uh, a certain conflict has uh, broken out uh, between people uh, defending different uh, approaches to uh, uh, phenomenology in the, in the field of qualitative research. And so uh, Smith has been rather uh, violently attacked by uh, Van Maan and who have argued that, that Smith has hijacked the term phenomenology to gain more readers, that uh, Smith's methodology is hopelessly misrepresentative of phenomenology in any acceptable sense, and that the program of IPA is far too shallow and superficial to qualify as phenomenological in the original sense of the term. So, I mean, this is certainly indicating that the people are not in agreement about 
how to use phenomenology and what the right way to use it uh, really amounts to. But let's move on and take a closer look at Max van Manen's own uh, proposal. So somewhat in contrast to uh, Smith, uh, van Manen is very explicit about the philosophical character of phenomenology and about the need to return to the origin and to consult, uh, as he says, the primary literature, tradition and movements of phenomenology. Now, how does uh, van Manen, uh, uh, how does he uh, uh, frame uh, the aim of, of, of ephemerological investigation? Well, on his account, phenomenology is basically the study of lived experience. It's the study of what an experience is like. And so he says that the basic phenomenological question is the question of what is that experience like? What about the phenomenological method? Well, here, uh, van Manen uh, argues that the basic method of phenomenology is the epoche and the reduction. And that the reason why we ought to employ the epoche and the reduction is in order to allow for a grasp of the phenomenological meaning of a human experience. So again, phenomenology is the study of the phenomena and the phenomena in question are someone's experiences. So there's a very clear focus on, on experiences here to kind of use a Husserlian term. There's a very close focus on the, the noesis. Uh, and uh, speaking about Husserl, uh, van Manen uh, actually says that uh, Husserlian phenomenology is not concerned with the external objects but only with our experience of the external object. Doesn't study the what of our experience, but only the experience of the what. Now, uh, van Manen's kind of major uh, work is, is probably his 2014 book, Phenomenology of Practice, which has been very favorably reviewed in the, in the discipline. It has been praised as offering a substantial clarification of the central phenomenological concepts and a particularly enlightening treatment of what it actually means to do phenomenological research. Now, what I think is, is very um, important here is that uh, van Manen uh, early on in this book uh, makes, it, makes it very clear that he thinks that it's, it's very important to be able to present phenomenology in a manner that is not too technical, precise in order to allow people not fully versed in philosophy to be able to understand what the project and methodology is, is all about. I think this is uh, absolutely correct. Uh, but when we then look at uh, van Manen's later description and uh, an account of a logical method, uh, things starts to get somewhat complicated. Because as I just mentioned, uh, van Manen claims that the epoche and the reduction are the crucial phenomenological methods, but he actually uh, expands on that and starts to distinguish initially the heuristic reduction, the hermeneutic reduction, the experiential reduction, and the methodological reduction. And he says that these are kind of you know, preparatory steps, which then have to be followed by what he calls the eidetic reduction, the ontological reduction, the ethical reduction, the radical reduction, and the originary reduction. So now we are currently dealing with nine different reductions. Fermanen also talks about the revocative, evocative, invocative, convocative, and provocative method. Uh, and as if that was not enough, 
He also talks about how the researcher needs to employ reduction, deduction, induction, preduction, production, abduction, and, and seduction in his phenomenological work. Now, I don't want to go into any details here. All I want to highlight at this point, I'll return to Van Manen later on, is that this is really quite complicated. It's not obvious that this is the best way of presenting phenomenology in a non-technical manner. What about uh, Georgie then? So Georgie uh, is very clear about primarily taking uh, Husserl's phenomenology as his uh, inspiration, and he has in particular been inspired by uh, Husserl's lectures on phenomenological psychology from the mid-20s. Georgie, just like Van Manen, argues that if we want to apply phenomenology, it's crucial to have an understanding of the philosophical underpinnings of phenomenology. And he argues that the overarching aim of phenomenology is to offer a faithful description of the essential structures of lived experience. Now, how do we do that? Uh, on uh, George's account, I have three important steps. First of all, we need to perform the phenomenological reduction. We should resist from positing as existing any object or state of affairs. Rather, we need to maintain the focus on what is given and explore that without, as he puts it, being pulled in by the object. Secondly, we need to be descriptive. We shouldn't be engaged in explanation or interpretation. We should focus on what is being experienced by the experiencer without adding or subtracting anything. And finally, and this is of course again a difference to, uh, to Jonathan Smith, the focus should be on essential invariant structures. Now, um, just like uh, Van Maan and uh, Georgie is insistent upon the phenomenology, really the phenomenological method really being bound uh, onto uh, the epoche and the reduction. And as he says, if we want to use phenomenological method in, in human science, uh, uh, in the human sciences, this will require the researcher to bracket or disengage from all past theories and knowledge about the phenomenon to withhold existential assent of the phenomenon. So it is essential that the researcher assumes, and here I quote, the attitude of the phenomenological reduction, which means that she must resist from positing as existing whatever object or state of affairs is present to her. The researcher still considers what is given to her, but she treats it as something that is present to her consciousness, and she refrains from saying that it actually is the way it presents itself to her. So again, this is very uh, uh, important for Georgie to stress this. Uh, a, a research undertaking cannot claim from logical status unless it is supported by some use of the reduction. Now, um, <clears throat> a few years ago, uh, a book was published by John Paley, uh, who basically took all the three figures I have just been uh, mentioning uh, to task. Uh, his, uh, the, the whole book is actually a very hostile uh, attack at phenomenology. Uh, and uh, he basically argues that uh, people interested in, in kind of philosophical underpinnings uh, uh, want to do qualitative research or kind of interest in philosophy that the best thing they could possibly do would be to go 
as far away from phenomenology as uh, as possible. And Paley tries to uh, support this critical conclusion by by basically subjecting George van Manen and Smith to a very kind of close scrutiny, ultimately arguing that they don't provide clear definitions of the concepts they use, that, they, that their methods doesn't have any methodological rigor and that uh, their work is basically permitted by personal idiosyncrasies. Now, I'm not out to in any way uh, defend Paley's view, uh, and, and I don't think that he's fair towards uh, the three authors in question. But what I think is kind of interesting uh, and, and uh, an obvious limitation in his approach is that he thinks that he, by criticizing Georgie and Van Manen and Smith, can basically get, get rid of phenomenology. And that, of course, would only be true, not only if his criticism were valid, but also if there were no other approaches that perhaps were more uh, productive and, and fertile. Uh, and what I want to try to uh, show in what follows is that there are actually a lot of resources that the paleo uh, have overlooked and that it might be worthwhile engaging with if one is interested in applying phenomenology to the field of qualitative research and also to a lot of other non-philosophical disciplines. And so I think the way to, to kind of phrase my, my, the next step in my presentation is basically in the following way, you know, how pure must the application be in order to merit uh, the term uh, from logical? I think that's the kind of important uh, question. Now, uh, as we just saw, uh, Van Manen and Georgie both insist that anybody who wants to practice phenomenology need to perform the epoche. What exactly, again, are the, uh, the reasons behind this insistence? Now, I think two reasons can often be, be found in the qualitative research literature. One argument given is that phenomenology involves an inward turn. So we need to perform the epoche in order to kind of bracket you know, our normal occupation with objects in order to be able to attempt to experience instead. So that would be one uh, argument. The other argument, which is slightly different, is that the reason why we need to perform the, uh, the epoche is because phenomenology by nature is descriptive rather than interpretative. And what we need to bracket uh, is precisely uh, all the, uh, the various theoretical presuppositions and prejudices that might uh, penetrate our normal experiential life. We need to bracket them in order to be able to return to the thing itself. So I think these are two of the reasons often given for why any approach that uh, uh, merits the name from logical has to uh, perform the epoche. Now, let's take a closer look at these arguments and see whether they really are uh, convincing. So one initial question one could ask is, is it really necessary to perform the epoche if we want to attend to experience? <coughs> and I mean, if we go a bit, I mean, if we kind of consider other movements uh, who were also very interested in, uh, in experience, like say Brentano's 
descriptive psychology, who obviously played a role uh, for Husserl, but also the introspectionism of, of James, of Wund, or Titchener. I mean, all these people were interested in experience, but none of them employed the epoche. So what is the argument? Or, I mean, why, why insist that we need to employ the epoche if we want to focus on experience? A perhaps even better argument is the following. If you go to the first edition of Husserl's logical investigation, we can obviously find very careful analysis of different intentional experiences. It's also in the logical investigations that Husserl, you know, you know, offered us this slogan about the need for a return to the things themselves. But the first edition of logical investigation contains absolutely no reference to the epoche and the reduction. So it seems as if Husserl were able to conduct the kind of phenomenology he did in logical investigations without employing these methods. Now, here's another argument. Uh, just prior to the outset of World War I, uh, Adolf Reinhardt held a, a lecture basically addressing the question, what is phenomenology? Now, as Reinhardt makes clear in this, uh, in this lecture, phenomenology is a particular philosophical attitude. It's not a system of philosophical propositions. What characterizes this attitude? Well, First of all, and perhaps most important to Reinhardt, the attitude really has an, an eidetic focus. Its aim is to grasp the essence of the object under investigation and not to be bothered by its kind of particularity. Now, very interestingly, when exemplifying the different domains that would merit phenomenological scrutiny, Reinhardt does mention the domain of experiences, but this is by no means the only domain pertaining to phenomenology. The domain of experience is only the first one. He, he then moves on to also say that phenomenology should investigate time, space, numbers, and concepts. So obviously, for Reinhardt, again, it would be completely wrong-headed to insist that the aim and target of the phenomenological method is lived experience. I mean, lived experience is one domain, but there are a lot of other domains that can also be explored phenomenologically. And uh, uh, Reinhardt uh, concludes his lecture by arguing that uh, the phenomenological return to the things themselves is a turning away from series and constructions in order again to, to obtain this pure and unobscured intuition of essences. So there's this idea that phenomenology is really about, I, I mean, Wesensschau, about grasping essences. And, and perhaps this shouldn't come as a surprise by now, in the whole text, in the whole lecture, there's absolutely no reference to the epoche and the reduction. So I mean, to argue that quite unproblematically that, uh, that the epoch and the reduction is the phenomenological method. I mean, it can't really stand scrutiny because there are a lot of phenomenologists who actually didn't agree with that. Um, and again, and, and I, I mean, one question to ask would be, well, why is it that the early Husserl of logical investigations and Reinhardt didn't mention the epoch and the reduction well, my uh, answer to that question would be, it's because none of them were engaged in transcendental phenomenology. <clears throat> now, the moment Husserl introduces the epoche and the reduction, 
is precisely in order to highlight the distinct transcendental philosophical nature of phenomenology. It's in order to highlight the difference between phenomenology and a psychological investigation of consciousness. Uh, and again, to kind of understand very briefly why uh, Husserl thought it necessary to you know, introduce these notions. I mean, one way to do that is in, in, is in the following way. Philosophy by nature, is faced with a number of very fundamental epistemological and metaphysical questions. Now, Husserl thought that it's not possible to engage with those questions in a sufficiently radical manner unless we suspend our kind of natural metaphysical assumptions. Because if we don't suspend them, we are kind of presupposing the answer from the very start. And if we do that, we are not really performing or uh, engaging in a radical philosophical uh, investigation. And so it's precisely in this context that the epoche becomes important. Because the, the aim of the epoche is not to bracket all kinds of theoretical assumptions, which, I mean, contrary to what was suggested a while ago by some of the proponents of this idea, no, the aim of the epoche is to target one very specific uh, assumption. And I think that Husserl is quite clear about that. And let me just give you a few quotes from Ideas 1 and Cartesian Meditations to support this claim. So here is Husserl in Ideas 1 when explaining the epoche. We put out of action the general positing, which belongs to the essence of the natural attitude. We parenthesize everything which that positing encompasses with respect to being. And here's what he also says in Ideas uh, 1, and I think this is a very interesting uh, passage. The epochean question here is not to be mistaken for the one which positivism requires. It is not now a matter of excluding all prejudices that cloud the pure objectivity of research, it's not a matter of constituting a science free of theories. This is not what phenomenology is about, and this is not why the epoche is in being introduced. Rather, this is now in Cartesian meditations, we perform the universal epoche with respect to the being or non-being of the world. We don't participate in the natural existence, positing that the originally straightforward perception or the cogito contains. So what is it that Husserl is saying here? Well, what he's saying is that the aim of the epoche is to bracket the natural attitude. It is to suspend our automatic belief in and reliance on the pre-given mind-independent existence of the world. Why do we need to bracket that? <clears throat> because we need to be liberated from our natural dogmatism. We need to be liberated from our kind of automatic metaphysical commitments and only by being liberated from those will we be in a position where we can gradually uh, realize to what extent we as subjects are engaged in a constitutive performance. Only in this sense can we realize to what extent consciousness, reason, truth, being, reality are essentially interlinked. And as Husserl puts it in, in crisis, by the end of the road, by performing the epoche and the reduction, what we will then be in a position to do is to accomplish, as he puts it, our main 
is not sole concern as phenomenologists, namely to transform the universal obviousness of the being of the world for him the greatest of all ignorant mass into something intelligible. Now, I think that's a very worthwhile philosophical agenda. And I think that that would be my own personal view. I think phenomenology must perform the epoche and the reduction if it really is to flourish as the transcendental philosophical project that I think it at heart is. But the obvious question to ask is whether people who are not philosophers, say physiotherapists or nurses or occupational psychologists or educators, if they want to use phenomenology in their research and clinical practice, well, are they primarily concerned with and interested in a transcendental elucidation of the being of the world? And if the answer is no, perhaps one should reconsider whether it really is urgent for them to perform the epoche and the reduction. Now, I think there are several points I want to make here. I mean, one point is that I really think that the epoche and the reduction was introduced by Husserl to address some very specific philosophical issues. And it's not obvious to me that if those philosophical issues are not on, on one's kind of main agenda, that one then must also necessarily perform the epoche and the reduction. But there's also another reason for why I think this is a, a problematic suggestion. <clears throat> and this is that this is that as long as there is this widespread view that one cannot apply phenomenology unless one uses the epoche and the reduction, if that's the widespread view, I mean, a lot of people who would like to use phenomenology in their practice also feel feels it of paramount importance to somehow explain their use of these terms. So if one looks in the literature, uh, one will unfortunately find a lot of quite confused presentations of the epoche and the reduction, confused presentations that just will lead to a lot of additional confusion among the practitioners who is trying to kind of find a a guide or a way uh, to, to employ phenomenology. And let me just give you a couple of examples of what I think to be kind of very odd takes on, on, uh, on, on these philosophical notions. So Langridge, for instance, have argued that the aim of the epoch is to transcend the noematic, the noetic noematic correlation and take a God's eye view on experience. I think this is a very odd presentation. I have no idea where Husserl should ever have said anything along those lines. Paley, whom I introduced earlier, argues that the aim of the phenomenological reduction is to break out of experience into the realm of pure consciousness. So we are supposed to move away from experience into consciousness. Again, it's very hard to understand what that's supposed to mean. Uh, Godet and Robert in a recent uh, handbook on qualitative research have argued that Husserl's aim was to adopt a point of view from nowhere and to erase his own presence from the analytical work for which reason his pursuit is similar to that of the positivists. So again, to suddenly present phenomenology as a, an attempt to adopt a point of view from nowhere again, where does that come from? 
Uh, and I've already uh, mentioned uh, Van Manen's kind of proliferation of, uh, of reductions, where again, of course, one has to ask how is a non-philosopher who's trying to use feminology, say, in his or her engagement with people suffering from specific chronic uh, illnesses, I mean, how are they going to maneuver between using all these different uh, concepts? I, it's, I, I really don't think that that is a very productive and, and helpful way of presenting phenomenology to non-philosophers. Now, uh, <clears throat> Van Manen uh, has, in response uh, to a kind of criticism I have directed at him, responded that one needs to make a distinction between philosophical phenomenology and phenomenological philosophy. Whereas philosophical phenomenology studies concrete phenomena, phenomenological philosophy studies philosophical concepts. And he basically thinks that this distinction is kind of uh, matched to a distinction between, on the one hand, actually doing phenomenology, which presumably is what he thinks he, thinks he himself is doing, vis-a-vis -vis being engaged in exegesis, which is what his critics are supposed to be uh, doing. And so, as he says, concerning the latter, and this is specifically uh, addressed at me, uh, people doing phenomenological philosophy uh, often lacks a sense of thoughtful epiphanic significance, and their work is of little interest to professionals in nursing, clinical psychology, medicine, etc. And so ultimately what he basically argues is that uh, there are these learned scholars who have criticized him and he claims that they are unable and unwilling to look phenomenology in the face. Now again, I don't want, I don't want to spend time kind of, you know, uh, replying to that criticism, but I think it's interesting to consider for just a second how different Smith uh, actually is for, from Van Manen or, or vice versa. I mean, when uh, Smith was uh, confronted with philosophical criticism, he basically said that philosophers didn't own phenomenology. And when Van Manen is confronted with criticism from philosophers, he seems to retort to the claim that they don't really understand phenomenology. And I think, I mean, I think this basically amounts to more or less the, the same kind of, of response. Now, um, as I've said, I think a non-philosophical application of phenomenology might want to forget about the epoche and the transcendental reduction, since both of the latter have very specific philosophical aims. Now, let me just emphasize that I'm not saying that non-philosophers are prohibited from making use of these concepts. And there might be very specific circumstances where the concepts actually are warranted. And I've just mentioned two examples. I think a very interesting example can be found in an article by the uh, German psychiatrist uh, Wolfgang Blankenburg from uh, 1979 called From Logische Epoche und Psychopathologie. What Blankenburg is arguing in that article is that is that schizophrenia, patients with schizophrenia, one way to describe the situation that they find themselves in is that they have lost what Blankenburg calls uh, natural evidence. So things do not have a natural meaning. Things are enigmatic in a way that they don't really are in, in normal life. And what Blankenburg is suggesting that it might be that the psychiatrist, in order to get a better understanding of what 
that mode of life is like for the patient with, uh, with schizophrenia might actually use the epoche as a, as a kind of tool. I think this is a very narrowly circumscribed use that I, where I think it really makes sense. Another potential uh, domain could be the field, <coughs> sorry, the field of uh, from logical anthropology. I mean, if you want to try to understand a very different way of experiencing the world, say one where stones and trees are animated by spirits, perhaps again, something akin to a phenomenological epoche might be uh, useful. So I'm not saying that non-philosophers are prohibited from using the epoche and the transcendental reduction, but I just don't see why uh, the employment of the epoche and the reduction are really crucial for any practice or research uh, to deserve the label uh, phenomenological. And I really think that if you are an educator or a nurse or a psycho or physiotherapist, it might really be much more relevant to be guided and informed by phenomenological concepts uh, and analysis with a direct clinical and interpersonal uh, relevance. <clears throat> so just to summarize my my findings, and then I'll move towards the kind of final part of my uh, my talk. <clears throat> I would kind of identify three dangers in much uh, current uh, uh, research that in, in in sorry, I would identify three dangers in much, much existing uh, qualitative research that claims to be phenomenological. On the one hand, there is the danger of being too superficial. To be phenomenological on this account simply means paying attention to experience. And I think this is a very trivializing way of using phenomenology. Another uh, danger is that the uh, method becomes far too philosophical, far too many technical concepts whose relevance remain completely obscure are introduced, and this will hamper uh, well, the applicability uh, of, uh, of phenomenology, and I think also scare a lot of potential uh, interested uh, practitioner uh, away. And finally, I also think that one can, in some cases, and I, and I think here I'm primarily thinking of Georgie, I think in some cases we are dealing with what I would call misplaced mythological requirements. I mean, this insistence that quality researchers really should really adopt a very specific uh, philosophical attitude. But of course, criticizing these approaches does not yet give us a, a ready answer of how then to proceed. And that's what I want to look at in the, in the final uh, uh, part of my uh, talk. And I think one obvious thing to do is to kind of look at best practice. Let's learn from existing successful applications of phenomenology. And, and I think three cases comes to mind, uh, classical from logical psychology, from logical psychiatry, and, and what is known as naturalized phenomenology, which I here primarily takes as the attempt to use ideas from phenomenology in, in cognitive science. Now, to prepare the way, let me just spend a couple of slides on an issue that we haven't talked so much about yet, namely um, the relationship between uh, obtaining data and analyzing data. And let's just go back to uh, George's method. Now, 
the way Georgie presented is that when we are, you know, faced with uh, transcripts of interviews and, and have to start analyzing the data, uh, there are kind of different steps to, to make. We should read for a sense of the whole. We should then divide the text into meaningful units. We should transform the data and then synthesize these transformed meaning units. These are, these are kind of a, a formal way of describing the process. And here is a, is a more uh, prosaic uh, description by, by George's um, late uh, wife. So uh, the way she puts it is, is as follows. In the first step, one reads what the participant expressed and without analyzing its meaning, one simply responds to the whole description. Then the next step is to divide the description into parts and to make meaning discriminations that are psychologically relevant to the phenomenon being researched. The third step, which is the core of the analysis, expresses very directly the psychological meaning embedded in the participant's everyday experience. In the fourth step, one then uses imaginative variation on these transformed meaning units in order to see what is truly essential about them. And then one carefully describes the most invariant connected meanings belonging to the experience, and that is the general structure. Um, and so one example uh, of this, is, uh, this is an example offered by uh, Amadeo Giorgi himself, is that after having analyzed uh, an interview transcript where the, uh, the, the informer is talking about uh, certain experiences of jealousy, the kind of essential output, uh, the, uh, the result of this very elaborate cumbersome analysis is kind of the following uh, statement, jealousy is experienced when P perceives that another is receiving significant attention that she wishes were being directed to her and the attention the other is receiving is experienced as a lack in her. Now, I don't want to say that, I mean, I don't want to judge George's accomplishments on the basis of, of this specific way he is presenting his research, but I really don't think that this is a very good selling case for why anybody should learn the method if, if that's the kind of insights that going through this elaborate psychological method is supposed to generate because I think what that conclusion amounts to is really not particularly significant or interesting. And, and this I think highlights another issue which is that George's main method is really focusing on data analysis so it's, it's focusing on, on data that has already been obtained. There's very little information about how that data is supposed to be obtained in the first place. At one point, Georgie says that one should obtain as complete an experiential description as possible from the participant. And he also says that the phonological researcher should not really care what the specific details or contents are but only that they are genuinely revelatory of the experience being researched. Now, this is then uh, amplified in a text by, by his late wife, where she basically puts uh, the, the problem in the following way. Let's assume that we want to investigate violence among youth. And as quality researchers, we are then uh, faced with the following conundrum. I mean, what exactly should we target in, in the interview? 
Should we ask about you know, the role of uh, feelings such as rage, anger, abandonment, victimization, shame or guilt in, in the perpetrator? Uh, should we investigate his or her personality traits? Should we ask questions about the context or the school environment or the classroom size or the student-teacher ratio? Or what about the role of culture and ethnicity, religious affiliations, belief systems, political positions? significant authors, role models, and so forth. So there's a lot of, there are, there are a lot of different ways one could go if one wanted to start asking questions. And so Barbara George's proposal now is that given that it's so difficult to decide among all these options, the phenomenologists and phenomenological psychologists actually have an, e an easy way to sidestep the, the problem as, as she writes. Allowing the participants to express themselves about their own experience without the influence of the researcher's question sidesteps these problems. If a research participant is asked to describe an actual event that contains the phenomenon under investigation, then the participant will spontaneously contextualize the event and give the most relevant and important aspects of the experience. Now, I have to say that I find that kind of very puzzling because it's a little bit like saying the only thing I need to do as an interview is to ask, well, you know, how are you or what is your situation like? And then I don't have to ask any more questions because the person being interviewed will basically supply all the relevant information. So, I mean, to put it a little bit at absurdum, it's a bit like saying, you know, we could really replace ourselves with a mic on, a, on the desk and then leave the room. Because all the people we were interviewing are kind of expert feminologists who are able to offer all these insightful descriptions. I don't really think it works like that. Uh, and I want to, to contrast this way of conducting interview with a very different approach that can be found in from logical uh, psychiatry. So again, according to, to the approach just described, it seems as if the idea is that if you want to interview as a feminologist, you're really not asked, uh, you're, you're really not supposed to ask questions, or at least you should ask as few questions as possible. Because if you start asking questions, then you are exerting influence on the subject, and that's what we need to avoid. So really, as I said, this is a kind of hands-off approach. <clears throat> and again, the problem is, well, what about, I mean, what if the interviewers, uh, the interviewees are not really able to offer us very rich descriptions? What then? Then the data that we are supposed to analyze won't be very informative either. Now, as I said, I want to contrast that with another approach and here I want to highlight something called EASE that was published back in 2005 by a group of psychiatrists, some of whom are based here in, at my center in Copenhagen. So EASE, the examination of animal, your self-experience, is basically a checklist uh, uh, consisting of uh, 57 items inspired and informed by philosophical phenomenology. And the aim of this checklist is to support a systematic clinical exploration and assessment of experiential anomalies. So by using the checklist in order to conduct semi-structured interviews, the role of the psychiatrist is not just passive. It is a question of engaging proactively and exploratively with the patient. 
And the idea is then to ask kind of probing questions concerning specific dimension and structures of experience that are considered to be of particular relevance. Uh, and uh, what counts as relevant here is very much guided by what phenomenology teaches us. So that's why this method is very much rooted in phenomenology. So typically there would be questions asked concerning, you know, embodiment, self-experience, temporality, social dimensions, etc. all issues that phenomenologists have typically been exploring very extensively. And so again, very importantly, this approach to interviewing is not about, it's not about being totally passive, nor is it about simply eliciting first-person reports from the patients. No, it's about actively employing a comprehensive theoretical framework. So I think this is a very different understanding of what makes the method phenomenological than some of the ones we have been uh, considering in the, in the previous. And as I said, some of the relevant concepts that are being used to elucidate the uh, experiential and existential uh, situation of the patient are, are you know, concepts related to embodiment, life world, intentionality, et cetera. Now, <clears throat> I also mentioned uh, uh, a, a, slide, a couple of slides back that, that there has been this increasing interest in, in using phenomenology in, uh, <clears throat> in, uh, in cognitive science. And of course, some of the main figures here are Francisco Varela, Ivan Thompson, or Sean Gallagher. An important milestone book was The Embodied Mind from 1991, and also later the book Naturalizing Phenomenology from 1999. And one of the basic proposals made by these cognitive scientists was that if cognitive science is to make progress, it shouldn't avoid consciousness, it has to engage with consciousness and it has to engage with consciousness using appropriate methods, namely those developed by primarily Husserl and, and Merleau-Ponty. Now, I think one interesting proposal was offered by, uh, by Sean in an article from 2003 called Phenomenology and Experience, uh, Experimental Design Toward a Phenomenologically Enlightened Experimental Science. And the basic proposal back then was that uh, one way to use phenomenology would be to um, be, be engaged in, uh, in the very design of empirical uh, investigations. So to put it differently, certain phenomenological concepts, certain phenomenological distinctions <clears throat> could be employed, well, in, in setting up the experiment and in order to target you know, specific uh, uh, explananda. So phenomenology was not just about, you know, interviewing the patients afterwards. It was not just about analyzing the data of those interviews. No, actually, phenomenology could be used at a much earlier stage in actually framing the very questions that we are interested in, in acquiring more information about. Uh, and I mean, I've given a few, a few suggestions now from, from logical psychiatry, contemporary from logical psychiatry, and also from contemporary kind of naturalized terminology. <clears throat> Let me end by just taking a quick look at some of the historical applications. Because if, as I started out by saying, 
phenomenology has been applied and used outside of philosophy since the very beginning. I mean, Jaspers wrote prior to uh, uh, World War One. He already wrote about uh, the, the importance of using philological ideas in psychiatry. And if one looks at some of these uh, grand figures, you know, Jaspers, Katz, Strauss, Minkowski, or, or Schütz, I mean, and if one looks at what it is that they took inspiration from, well, what they would often stress is the importance of carefully attending to the phenomena. <clears throat> it's about not being blinded by preconceived theories, or, I mean, retaining a certain open-minded attitude. In addition, many of them were interested in specific phenomenological concepts, such as intentionality, embodiment, empathy of the life world. Now, what we don't find them using, and again, I think this is relevant, and I think it's a clear contrast to how Van Manen and Georgie are talking about the matters. They didn't really seem to be primarily interested in Husserl's transcendental philosophy. They didn't really draw much on Husserl's notion of epoche and reduction. And I think it's, it's quite interesting that Spiegelberg, in the conclusion to his kind of monumental survey phenomenology and psychology and psychiatry, which I strongly recommend since it covers and summarizes much of that early uh, literature. <clears throat> in, in the conclusion, he explicitly warns against an orthodox return to Husserl, and he argues that if a really, if a true uh, two-way exchange between psychology and phenomenology is to be possible, it's kind of urgent to free oneself from some of the technicalities of Husserl's philosophy. And of course, this is not a criticism of Husserl's philosophy. It's just making the point that if we want to apply phenomenology outside of philosophy, some of those philosophical technicalities might better be put uh, to the side. Just one more example and then uh, the concluding slide. I recently stumbled across uh, this book by Binswanger, who of course is also one of the leading figures in phenomenological psychiatry. It's a, it's a book that uh, was published in 1922 called Introduction to the Problems of uh, General Psychology, uh, where Binswanger, and it's kind of, I think, very interesting also historically, this was a book written for psychiatrists and what Binswanger does in that book is to present an, an overview of systematic discussions ranging from Kant, Hegel, uh, the, the Neo-Kantians, you know, philosophy of life and phenomenology. So it's all about philosophy. And I mean, what is kind of interesting is that this was supposed to be something that psychiatrists had to learn to acquire expertise in their domain. I mean, I really don't think that that is what is currently expected of a psychiatrist, unfortunately. Anyway, one of the questions that Binswanger asks in the book is, how can phenomenology make a difference? And he says that phenomenology can, can provide for better foundation for empirical psychology and psychiatry. This is one of the reasons why psychiatrists should look at it. Now, how can it do that? Well, for instance, by offering a correct account of social cognition, one that avoids all kinds of references to projection and analogical inference. So very interestingly, what, what Binswanger is saying is that if we follow Husserl and Scheler and recognize that the primary manifestation of another human being is in the form of an undivided psychophysical unity, that is that we encounter authors near, neither as mere body nor as pure mind, 
Well, that, that is something that is really relevant for the clinician, and this is an analysis that can be uh, that that can be found in uh, in uh, in phenomenology. So this is some, this is what he takes from phenomenology. He doesn't take any reference. He doesn't use the epoche and the reduction at all. I mean, that's one single reference to the eidetic reduction, no reference to the epoche and the phenomenological reduction, even in Binswanger's account of what Husserl was up to. So again, very different from what current proponents of using from non quality research are saying. And so final slide, as I've tried to argue, uh, applied feminology is not really about simply eliciting first person reports from the informant. I think it's about actively employing a comprehensive theoretical framework in the investigation. So one should not be afraid of using phenomenological notions, but I also think it's important that the notions one use are notions with a relevance for the topic under, in, under investigation. If one is interested in patient contact, I mean, uh, concepts of relevance here might, for instance, include life world, empathy, temporality, embodiment. I think it's very important that one should assess uh, the value of the procedure in question on the basis of what it actually offers, what new insights does it offer, that should be the criteria of, of success. The criteria should not be whether this kind of fits with what Husserl and Heidegger had to say uh, on the matter. Uh, as I said, I think that the phenomenological tools being employed must really show their pertinence, they must make a valuable difference. If they can't do that, why should we use phenomenology? And so I do think that, you know, a constant appeal to orthodoxy or purity or methodological rigor, I think it's something of a, of a red herring if we are talking about non-philosophical phenomenology. And so ultimately, I also would argue that perhaps it's really best not to think of phenomenology in that domain as a specific method. Perhaps it's better to think of it as a toolbox that can be used in conjunction with a number of existing methods within qualitative research. Thank you very much for your uh, attention.